Dr. Amalia Ganyas-Malka, welcome to Womanity, Women in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us in our Johannesburg studio today is Professor Judith Bruce, who is head of the School of Therapeutic Sciences at Fitz University in Johannesburg. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Amalia. I'm happy to be here, and hello to all your listeners. It's a pleasure having you here, and in continuing with our theme on ladies that are heading up the academic departments at some of our most prestigious universities. So to start with, the School of Therapeutic Sciences at Wits University comprises of several disciplines from exercise science, sports medicine, nursing, occupational therapy, pharmacy, pharmacology, and physiotherapy, which sees the production of pharmacists, nurses, occupational therapists, physiotherapists, biokinetics, exercise science, and sports medicine. What would you say are some of the challenges that you face, as well as the responsibilities that come with leading the school? Well, uh, thank you for that question. Well, you may probably know that um, therapeutic sciences is really an organizing structure for putting together all professions that are not medicine or dentistry. And one of my key sort of responsibilities is to harness the expertise of all those uh, uh, disciplines without losing the uniqueness of each. So, so each discipline then still needs to retain its own identity in, in a sense. Uh, and that comes with, with, with quite a bit of challenge sometimes. Uh, also remembering that each of the disciplines are led or regulated by, by their own professional councils, and therein we also sometimes encounter problems. One of our biggest challenges, of, of course, as you may know, is that each of the professions in the school also have different partners with whom they work, so educating health professionals is not solely our responsibility, so there will be industry partners, government partners, non-governmental partners, and all of them contribute quite significantly to the training of our health professionals. One of the, like with any relationship, of course, is the difficulties that we sometimes have to navigate in maintaining our partnerships. And I think one of the critical issues today is around protests. We've been uh, facing several protests, um, shrinking resources, and, of course, very recent health worker strikes, which have become more aggressive and violent in nature. And what that does, it just makes your responsibility far more difficult uh, with respect to safety of patients, students, and, and staff, of course. And also it raises moral questions about what we should be doing to protect our patients in, in this regard. So those are just some of the difficulties, but but also having our responsibility to protect people mm. during those times. There's a lot of complexity involved, and it almost sounds as you've got a, this house of brands, if I put it into yes. business and marketing terms, because each of those brands as different disciplines has to be unique, but Absolutely. yet you've got to integrate amongst this fabric to keep the sort of uniform identity of the, the overall faculty. Moving towards the future, what would you say are some of the milestones that you want to achieve in this role? 
Well, maybe it's not about milestones, but it's what are some of the things that I'd like to leave behind. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, milestones for me is almost uh, like fixed. You know, you can't go back and unchange what you've so done. So a bit of a legacy. Yeah, a bit of a legacy. But what one of the things that I really strongly believe in, and it really comes from leading such a, a multi-professional school, is the fact that, that we can no longer rely on a single health professional to change the health profile of the country. So I'm quite a, a supporter of interprofessional learning and looking at, at common courses or core curricula that speak to all professions. So, so I believe there's a common foundation of knowledge that will be needed if we think that we should be working uh, as teams of health professionals in order to make an impact on the health profile of people. I think it will also debunk the myth uh, where we still believe that some health professionals are better than or most, more important or superior to the other. And that we can only change if students learn together in a setting where they all see their own importance towards influencing the health of people. You're part of a team. Yeah, absolutely. And having, when you're as, a, as a body, you've got all absolutely. of the different functional aspects and no single yeah. person, I think, can yeah. take responsibility for everything. And we've trialed it in, in the school and in the faculty at large, and student responses to that is very positive. And, and of course, many of them believe that that's the way of the future. Future learning requires us to be together, to learn together, and ultimately to treat and, and care for patients together. I think that's a wonderful mm-hmm. notion and idea moving forwards to have that multidisciplinary yeah. approach. I know that's true. The School of Therapeutic Sciences at WITS produces meaningful research which serves various communities. Uh, for instance, through its involvement with the WITS Research Institute of Malaria, which provides an environment to enhance groundbreaking research into one of Africa's deadliest diseases. I read that according to UNICEF, over one million people die from malaria every year, and between 300 to 600 million people are infected by mosquitoes with the disease each year. WITS also has the the WITS Advanced Drug Delivery Platform, a research unit which conducts and delivers innovative drug research solutions and other research initiatives which contribute towards our understanding of human movement, sports medicine and sports education. Can you share some details uh, about some of these often life-changing initiatives? Yes, um, without um, giving you all the technicalities, um, if you, for example, look at the work that happens in the WITS uh, Advanced Drug Delivery Platform, you know, they are working very keenly on different ways to deliver drugs um, to different parts of the body. So, for example, they will look at, at the spinal cord, the eye, the skin, different the ways of delivering, yes, delivering drugs. You may know that the therapeutic uh, doses of drugs and its capacity to heal gets destroyed in the process of entering or, or perhaps, you know, as it gets metabolized in the body. And so they use various technologies, um, uh, wafer technologies, they use nanotechnologies to look at better ways to deliver drugs for greater efficacy within the body. They're making great strides in the neurosciences and particularly in improving uh, neurological diseases, um, you know, such as um, multiple sclerosis, Parkinson's disease, 
uh, dementia, and all of those um, um, innovations can improve the quality of life of, of patients suffering from those diseases. And they're such debilitating diseases. Absolutely, absolutely. And so obviously you want to have uh, uh, drugs in the body that can exert maximum effect in order for these patients to have a better quality of life. Great, thanks for sharing. You also have a specific interest mm. in problem-based learning and curricular issues in nursing education with a focus on program and capacity development research. And one of the challenges that I think our world faces yes. in almost every sphere is that we're developing more rapidly than we've got time to go back, adjust curricula, make sure that we're on, on track, on track uh, yeah, to yeah. keep pace with the change. How do you think we can develop our capabilities for the future and overcome this gap? Well, I was fortunate enough when I joined WITS, I joined at a time when, particularly in their nursing department, they were undergoing major curriculum reform. And although problem-based learning, as an example, is more than 50 years old, it was one of the things that we then decided to introduce, and it was more than just a learning pedagogy it was also an opportunity to for social transformation because you at the time you must remember with apartheid students were not allowed to learn together to live together to socialize together and and problem based learning enabled students to learn together in small groups and harness those skills that we require of them in order to become those people that curricula on its own cannot teach people and so uh, some of the, the skills that students learn during problem-based learning is critical thinking. They le learn to deal with real-life clinical problems that patients face and how to deal with them. In discussing these problems, there's also collaborative problem-solving approach. And one of the things that they require to do is to decide what their own learning gaps are and then to decide what resources they would need to find and access in order to meet those learning gaps. And those are skills you want people to exit from, uh, from any program. Uh, for example, um, I've, I've always had the view that no curriculum can teach you everything you need to know to become a good doctor, a good nurse, a good pharmacist, or a competent pharmacist for that matter. And so leaving from a problem-based curriculum sort of equip students with those kinds of skills. Now you asked about bridging the gap. So problem-based learning is old. There are far uh, better transformative pedagogies that we use and when you combine that in with all the technologies, learning technologies that we have today, I mean so many students have smart devices and so you as the lecturer is no longer the oracle of of all information and the source of knowledge and so students can access information, but you have to train their minds about how to use that information. Um, and I, I believe that that is quite an important thing. So it must be a very different approach to what it was in the past. Absolutely. I mean, being the oracle of information, you yes. are the gospel so, so preaching. Many us, so many of us have had to de-roll from that traditional notions of what a teacher is like and should be like. And and so in our school, for example, we now have um, uh, one learning space, it's big, big enough to accommodate large numbers of students, called the E-Zone. 
And the E-Zone is really about uh, bridging that gap that you're talking about. So it is a, an adaptable, uh, technology-rich learning environment where students can come, lecturers can come and learn in, in novel ways to acquire the skills that you'd like them to have. And I think one of the challenges that I've always found when you're studying and you're doing research is how much is enough. And yes. when you yes. have got open to, to the universe yes. in terms of, of knowledge, it's extracting the right Absolutely. pieces. Because there are no yeah. filters. Yeah. Staying on the topic of education, I think that education, not just me, I mean, it has been proven it's a vital tool to empower individuals and societies, whether it's from basic levels of literacy and numeracy, which have had profound effects on the well-being of women. And those benefits extend from control of a fertility rate to reduced child mortality, improved health management, poverty reduction, and according to UNESCO, an additional year of schooling yields a 10% increase on earnings. Do you think that we're doing enough to ensure that knowledge is preached in every form possible and, and passed on from mothers to daughters? And I ask this particularly because mm. of your interest and focus in the health space. Yes, you know, I, I don't think that we'd ever do enough to a point where we need not do any more. Um, it's incumbent upon, upon us, particularly as women, to continue to educate our, our, particularly our girl children. As you well know, to some extent, education has an end point, but learning is ongoing. Learning never stops. You may have completed a qualification or an educational program, but I believe that people should go continue learning to achieve what they want to achieve. You may also know that literacy is a huge problem um, in South Africa. We've recently seen headlines of 80% of our grade fours who cannot read uh, with understanding or with meaning. And even though um, there's also a, high, a headline that suggests that girls read better than boys, I think we must remember that they're both of them actually start at a very low base. So it's not something that we should be applauding. And I think as girl children uh, progress in school and sort of get to high school, and some even before they get to high school, there are other factors that impact on their attendance and their retention um, in schools and their ability to complete school. And some of those things are the onset of menstruation, the development of sec secondary sex characteristics, uh, experimentation, peer pressure, and of course teenage pregnancy. And so, so although girls are slightly ahead um, of boys in terms of their reading capabilities, I think there are definitely those other factors that impact on their ability to rise above mm. boys later in life. So one of the things that, that, the, that we also say is that the culture of reading is absent in homes, particularly of girls. And it's been shown that the attitudes toward reading in a home is strongly correlated to uh, performance in reading. And so I think for us as, as women, as grandparents, as dads or, or primary caregivers of girls and, and other children to really in their homes begin to look at, at reading. Um, you know, there's sometimes where parents cannot read, but children can read for them. And so that is how you encourage reading. I'm not sure what community libraries look like today, 
But I think there should be more of that, particularly for underprivileged communities, because that's how we get uh, learners to read more and really to develop that love for reading. When I listen to your response, I'm almost reminded of what you said earlier about the interdisciplinary approach that you have in looking at after the School of, of Therapeutic Sciences by the fact that having one say um, stream in, in terms of being able to read is is actually not enough you've got to take into consideration the compounding effect of Absolutely. social and cultural factors <clears throat> which you can be the greatest reader in the world but if your environment isn't conducive to helping you advance absolutely it's going to pull you down yeah absolutely i mean one of the things that people also uh, seem not to understand is is that if you cannot read with meaning you cannot learn formally and if you cannot learn formally, it's difficult for you to, re- to acquire meaningful education and that in turn impacts on your earning ability. Now, there are some people who will say, oh, well, you don't need an education to earn well, but that applies to a minority. For the majority, we have to work and learn. And, and a very, <laughs> very small yes. minority. Yeah, absolutely. Yes, Richard Branson is wonderful. Yes. But how many Richard Bransons are there? Absolutely. So that links to the income potential that you were talking about. But it is so detrimental if you think that 80% of our youth in schools are not at an appropriate level of literacy because it's just going to impede their progress moving forwards. Those those students are never going to be able to understand what it takes at university. And like you said, it impacts on learning potential and income potential. You are clearly very passionate about <laughs> developing and promoting education as well as research scholarship. Um, and your background, I, I haven't really spoken a lot about it today, is in nursing. And you're involved with NAPAD and the Africa-wide Honor Society of Nursing, a, a chapter of the Sigma Theta Tau International. Can you share some of the outcomes from these bodies and, and the work that they do? Yes, um, I was very fortunate to team up with visionary nurse leaders. Uh, one of them has unfortunately passed away already, um, who set up, uh, w- what they did is they, they kind of took Africa to the world I- in a sense. And we teamed up, the, we built several nursing networks from Africa with the rest of the world. And one of the things that we did was to um, go to different member countries. In fact, uh, um, outcries from certain countries about the education of nurses was one of the key drivers for us to to work with countries like Kenya, Tanzania, Ghana, Nigeria, Malawi, Mozambique, m- many many countries. And often nurses are the primary point yes. of, yes. of healthcare. Absolutely. And and you and and what we take for granted in countries like South Africa is the opportunity to study further. So for many um, African countries, nursing stops at basic level. So you entered nursing, you did your two or three year course, and that's where it stops. And so for many of these nurses, they wanted more. They didn't necessarily want to leave their own countries to go and do courses outside of Tanzania, as an example. And so through the work of this Africa Honor Society, we then uh, set up consortiums of, of universities to go into these countries. And it doesn't sound as simple as I'm saying it, but it, it takes a while to negotiate with governments because you need to get the buy-in from, 
from different sectors um, in the respective countries. And we then set up postgraduate programs for nurses based on a health profile analysis so that these nurses then become specialized in fields that they would require to address some of the most um, pressing health issues that their country uh, face. So it was relative to the context so it's of the relative country. to the context. So the work that I, the countries that I did a lot of work in is Malawi and um, Mozambique. And most recently, after a five-year stint in Mozambique, um, that's where I took some of my own colleagues to do some work there. And our first cohort of graduates were 12 uh, nurses and midwives who specialized in trauma and emergency care because that was a pressing need in Mozambique with all the um, acuity levels increasing at phenomenal rates, and of course in neonatal and maternal health. So we're busy doing a follow-up study to see uh, two years later whether there's been some impact um, on their own professional lives and also to the lives and the health profile of the people that they're serving. So we're busy with that at the moment. And have you got any highlights that have have come through yet, or is it early days still? I think it's early days. There's some um, anecdotal evidence that that they are really able to make a difference in the hospital sector. But one of the, 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 the concerning findings is that despite the increased capacity in knowledge, they seem to be powerless to to make a real difference in the health sector. And that's probably, and that is something we're exploring further, it may be related to gender or other um, issues within the health system itself. Well, they're standing from a point of gaining new knowledge and somebody else Absolutely. might not have what they have, so there could be a power dynamic. Yeah, yeah absolutely. At play. Today we're talking to Professor Judith Bruce, who is the head of the School of Therapeutic Sciences at Witts University in Johannesburg. Hi, I'm Zonke Digana, a South African Afro-Soul musician, songwriter and producer. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You are listening to Womanity, Women in Unity on Channel Africa, the African Perspective on frequency 9625 kilohertz on the 31 meter band also available on DSTV channel 802. Today we're talking to Professor Judith Bruce who is the head of the School of Therapeutic Sciences at Witts University in Johannesburg. We would love to receive your comments on Twitter at Womanity Talk. Professor Bruce, earlier we were talking about the work that you were doing in NAPAD as well as with the Africa-wide Honor Society on nursing. And I'd like to highlight some of the accomplishments that, that you've achieved in acknowledgement of your leadership work, particularly your influence on the lives and careers of women and young girls. You were awarded with the prestigious Lucy S. Kelly Mentor Award in Las Vegas in 2015. You received the Vice Chancellor's Academic Citizenship Award in 2016. As women's empowerment is a cornerstone of this program, What are some of the things that you've done to influence women and girls in pursuit of their careers? Thank you. That's always a very difficult question to answer because if you asked those individuals whose lives I think I touched, they would be in a better position to say what it is 
that I've done. So, so, but on a more serious note, I think uh, for me, it's it's going beyond the core of the leadership position that you hold. It it it's, it means going beyond what is required of you in a particular position. And so, some of the things that I do is just very simple acts. I don't know if it's acts of kindness or or acts of just understanding the plight of women and creating an enabling environment uh, for them to achieve the goals that they set out for themselves. I think that's very important. Uh, A lot of what I do involves giving off myself, giving off my time, uh, sharing my expertise, and where I can, I do make some donations to charitable organizations and particularly the one that I belong to, there's an opportunity to be a philanthropist. And so anonymously you, you give money to be put into a grant for nurses to either do research or to have the opportunity to travel to a conference where they would never be able to go to on the other side of the world. And those are, are small things that I do. So I cannot tell you in a coherent manner that I have this really big organization <laughs> that enables me to do this and and so it's really outside of of the call of my normal mm. position so i'm driven by philanthropy and volunteerism and and so that's what's central to me and because nursing is a female dominated profession it's it's women young and old who who are the benefactors but in giving time in the philanthropic efforts all of those things, I think, are about opening opportunities because you yeah. can go to a conference yes. and you could meet your next employer. Yes. You could meet your next collaborator in, in research. Precisely, precisely. And they all accumulate. Yeah. And so there are benefits that accrue in, in the process. So, so that's why I'm saying they small acts, understanding just the plight of women mm. and, and a lot of what I've had to encounter and what I would have liked to have had in, in my rising in a leadership position. And now you're in the position yeah. to, to know what those challenges, challenges were, were and yeah. be able to ease Correct. the journey of the <laughs> of next others. generation. As a gender-based program, we constantly focus on the importance of building female leadership capacity for the future of women in our country or even in our continent. And as a female professor who's achieved a lot in your life, how do you see female leadership in South Africa, and whether that's in the academic space, political, or any other arena? So I have, I have no doubt that female leadership in, in South Africa um, influences the career aspirations of, of young girls and, and women. The reality, though, is that we, we haven't reached the critical mass required to exert that influence. And I think uh, if you reflect back on on what the reasons might be, and I think lots have been written about it, it's just not my field of of expertise. But if you think of the intersections of race, uh, gender, uh, stereotypes, professional class, and also patriarchy, that intersects with the the debates around female leadership, you have to then realize that they are the biggest impediments to to women rising in two leadership positions. Um, And so although some studies 
actually show, and they've been South African studies, that show that um, men or, or male interviewees actually support women women as leaders, and and some actually prefer to be led by women. The reality on the ground is that we do not have women in top leadership positions that matches the perceptions of, of men in the country. And, and a recent study at UCT actually showed that, that almost a third of um, uh, workplaces in South Africa do not have women in senior management. Now, if you look at universities, those stats are even more dire and I think partly because there's an unconscious bias in universities um, in favor of men. And so that a lot still needs to be done to change that field of work. So female leaders, I think, can't sit and wait for things to change. We really have to develop a self-reliance and an agency to make things happen for us, I, I believe. And so those things won't go away in a hurry. And But what we need to do in the process to take other women along with us. So to develop succession plans. Develop succession plans, develop the pipeline for the next generation of women leaders in the country. And I have to say, when I looked across the spectrum of, of heads of schools at, at WITS within the medical sector, that there are quite a lot of women. Yeah. Was that a conscious decision by the university or was it a natural process of building leadership capacity and as you say women leaders being very conscious about succession planning i think it's a bit of both the, the university is doing quite a lot to to transform and to empower women in, in and and looking particularly at women um people who've not had the opportunity previously. We're also more and more looking at opportunities to develop women within the organization so that they are able and have the skills to succeed to positions of leadership. But I also think that it, that many departments and schools um, are compelled and have actually taken that leadership role to develop appropriate succession plans that does accommodate the needs of, of women and other uh, particular groups in the faculties. I hope it continues and yes, keeping up the good certainly work. Certainly, we will. <laughs> Turning towards more of a, a personal perspective, one of the questions that I ask my guests on this program who've all made tremendous achievements yeah. in their respective fields of expertise relates to what they consider to be some of the factors of their success. So some people speak about perseverance, hard work, which is almost always a given. What, in your opinion, have been some of the key drivers to your success? Well, I think I'm, I'm a very committed person. And, and highly energetic. I've got lots of energy. People call it passion. I call it energy. So I'm awake at four in the morning and by six, quarter past six, I'm already in the office. Um, I think I also learned early on in, in my life that I have to be smart and work twice as hard to debunk the inferiority myths that apartheid actually dictate to some of us. So I found out that being goal-directed yet adaptable is so important and that helped me along my career and, and my success. I think, you know, they always say life happens and for women in particular, life happens all the time. There are always things that 
kind of interrupt you achieving your goals. And I think to be adaptable and flexible and not to harden yourself when you don't achieve it in the time you thought you should be achieving something, I think is a very important thing to remember. Because as women, I think we can be unnecessarily hard on ourselves. We're quick to develop anxiety and guilt around things that we've either not achieved or have left undone. But usually that's as a result of circumstances that are yes. completely beyond, beyond your, control. your control. Yeah, absolutely. But you, as a high achiever, you yeah. want to make sure that you have accomplished the goals that you've set. Yes. And ideally in the time frame. I, I call them punctuations in, in your life, you know, and you've got to expect those punctuations. And that's all that they are. They just put your progress on hold for a little while. Then you've got to pick up again where you've left off and carry on. It's a wonderful <laughs> expression, punctuations <laughs> in your life. Can you tell us who've been some of the strong women in your life? Oh, dear, that's almost so predictable. Um, it has to be my mother um, and my grandmother. You know, my mother never had an education, but she was so astounding in the things that she achieved with us and taught us uh, when we were young kids. And so she's been a really, she didn't have education, but she really wanted us to have an education and supported whatever it was that you wanted to do. She was always very supportive. My grandmother was an astounding woman. She lived to the age of 99 and raised nine children after her husband died in his early uh, 40s. I, I never had the privilege of meeting my grandfather. But she was a feisty old lady. And I, I, I learned that driven to be driven and to be feisty from her and she always told us both her and my mom used to say you always stand up what you believe is right and that stayed with me for for the rest of my life those are strong characteristics yeah, yeah. and going back on on your life can you tell us about some of the pivotal moments growing up so so i grew up in a, a rural mining town and you can imagine all the challenges that that face um people living in rural areas I encountered, uh, there, were, there were no excuses, even though my dad was a primary school teacher, I had to walk to school long distances and, and there were all those things that we had to navigate. But when we left the rural town, we would always be sent back to the grandparents' home to be taken care of during the school holidays. And one of the chores that I had to do was to go to the post office. And at the post office, there was a, a poster and the poster sketched two scenarios. The one was of dire poverty, and the other one was of a family. It's the same setting, so it, it was the same sort of landscape, the same number of children, and, and so there was kind of equality in a sense in what the poster was trying to depict. But the second scenario was one of affluence, um, where people had obviously done something to improve their lives. And I would be so enchanted by this. I was a little girl and and I would look at this poster every day and think to myself, I don't want to become that. I want to become this. But what it also did for me was to develop this deep compassion for people who, who never could or would be able to achieve and uplift themselves out of poverty. So I think that for me, you know, was, was, was a turning point in my life. And I always think about it to this day. <laughs> and funny enough, the, the punchline was saving. 
That's what it was. And isn't that what financial advisors tell us still to this day, that you've got to save where you can to improve your, your life and to make things better for yourself? And concerned about the choices that yeah, you make. that you make. On, on those directions. Yeah. You've spoken about your mom. You've spoken about your grandmother. What, what else influenced you in, in those years to, to make you who you are today? Well, it's very difficult to say that. Um, I was brought up in a Christian family, and, and for me, the, the values of, of, of humanity self-respect, respect for others. Those were kind of things that we were taught very early on. But it wasn't just in theory. We had to live those. And, and that for me it just translates into everything that I do today. So it's a value system. It's a value system that, that kept me going. And it's a value system that both my husband and I try to impart to our daughters um, who are also big women today. <laughs> Congratulations. <laughs> Thank you. And lastly, as we close out the conversation today, could you share a few words of inspiration which you'd like to pass on to girls and women in the continent who are listening to us? Well, I I think I don't have huge philosophical sayings, but I think it's important for, for us and particularly for women to know what you want out of life and to work towards achieving that. Um, I also want to say that never underestimate your ability, your, your abilities and the power that comes with it. But I also at the same time want to say use this power responsibly so that it helps you to shape a legacy that you want other women uh, to follow or to have. Uh, that for me is, is in a nutshell, I think that that was important for women to have. Thank you very much for sharing today your views regarding leadership, regarding what women need to have in terms of attributes to succeed. Very, very inspiring. So thanks for sharing your your passion and energy with us today. Thank you. Thanks for the opportunity. You have been listening to Womanity, Woman in Unity on Channel Africa, The African Perspective. And we have been talking to Professor Judith Bruce, who is head of the School of Therapeutic Sciences at Witts University in Johannesburg.